Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. On this week's episode, reporters Michelle Rundells and Riley Snyder talk with John Puro, a lawyer in Las Vegas who was arrested during a Black Lives Matter protest. He was there as a legal observer to document and observe the protest and the police. After that, reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez talks with Michael Kagan and Nayeli Rico Lopez about the Supreme Court's decision to block the Trump administration, for now, from ending the DACA program. At the end of the show, you and I, Jacob, talk about our days back at the Nevada Sagebrush, the UNR student-run newspaper. But before we hear from our guests on the show today, here are a few numbers regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Friday, June 19th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada exceed 12,400 and 478 people have died. Those numbers represent a pronounced uptick since the state began its reopening process last month, and Clark County alone has now seen two days this week with more than 300 new positive tests. Reported recoveries, meanwhile, exceed 8,900 statewide, and the number of people tested in the state now totals more than 234,000. For more data on the coronavirus, including a detailed infographic and regularly updated spreadsheet, head to thenevadaindependent.com. We're here with John Pirro, who's a member of the Clark County Public Defender's Office. John, thanks so much for being with us. Usually we interact with you at the legislature when you're testifying on bills, but we're talking to you for a very different reason today. And that's because over the weekend, you were arrested by Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department during your work as a legal observer for some of the many protests that are going on. So to start off with, can you talk a little bit about what your role is with the public defender's office and kind of a little bit more about what this legal observer program is about? Absolutely. I'm the chief deputy public defender with the Clark County Public Defender's Office. I've been there eight years, which means I defend people, uh, fellow citizens accused of a crime in all aspects from start to finish. However, as a trained legal observer, that's totally separate. That's volunteer work on the side, not related to the Clark County Public Defender's Office at all. That's something that came about when the protesters first started. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the National Lawyers Guild. And to be honest with you, I wasn't familiar with it until about two and a half weeks ago when all the protests first started. But the National Lawyers Guild was started in response when the American Bar Association was not letting Black people become members of the American Bar Association. So the National Lawyers Guild began, and then eventually it transitioned into legal observing work. And what a legal observer does is you're a neutral, independent witness that does not participate in the protest, but you are there to objectively evaluate the constitutionality of government conduct. Kind of like when you guys are at the protests as well, taking notes, watching, seeing what's happened happening, that's a much different role than what I'm used to. So that was a learning curve for me. And we all went through training to do that. Can you talk a little bit about what your, I guess, more direct duties might entail as a legal observer? Are you taking videos? Are you taking notes? Are you talking and just kind of observing what's going on? Do you directly intervene if you feel that's necessary or if someone oversteps a boundary? We cannot intervene. So we're there just to witness, which is also a weird place to be into. And that was a learning curve for me. You're there to witness, to take notes, to take videos, to take pictures, to see what's going on, to be the eyes and ears of a legal team for protesters that may be arrested. So I know in some of the sheriff's videos, it showed legal observers getting close to the, to the police officers and kind of recording their actions. And that's to 
one, get the names and identification of the people that were arrested, and two, get the names of the officers that were doing the arresting so that we can inform the person's family that they've been arrested, here's where they're headed, here's what's going on, and here's the officers that arrested them. John, we, I just refreshed myself on the videos that were shown at today's press conference. One of them does depict you, and uh, I believe it was Belinda, was one of the other legal observers, getting arrested. It was a yeah. little hard to tell what was going on. Um, can you give us, from your perspective, what exactly happened there? I'm actually glad that they uh, shared that video because it depicts exactly what we said happened. We were there uh, and we were boxed in by the police. The police were boxed in behind us in their riot line and in front of us. So there was nowhere to go. And we had actually spoken with Lieutenant D. Butler minutes before to find out if we could get information for the first legal observer that was arrested. And he was very kind and he said, yes, you're just going to have to hang out for a little bit and then we'll see what happens and you can get that information, I'm sure. So we were sitting there on the corner of the sidewalk of Russell and Las Vegas Boulevard waiting for our chance to be able to speak with officers to get information of the first legal observer that was detained when all of a sudden multiple uniform officers walked in our direction and snatched us off the sidewalk without warning. We also saw as part of that video an extended, you know, footage of them sort of kind of picking the pockets of, of one of the legal observers. What was happening there? And do you think that was okay? I don't, I don't really understand why they kept that footage that long. And it seemed very expletive for them to do that to Belinda. They also, notably, you notice that there was no sound on that video, right? Well, I want to tell you what I heard because we were observing one lone protester left there that the police were interacting with. And when they slammed that young man to the ground and he was audibly upset, they teased him and they said, what are you going to cry now? And so it's interesting that the sheriff neglected to put that audio to the video when he showed it to the media. Now, you're all the time in the legislature working kind of across the aisle, really, with uh, the police agencies and DAs. I mean, what have you taken away from this experience? Has it changed your perspective on anything? I will say being arrested is something that it's a very degrading feeling. You feel very helpless being snatched off the sidewalk like that when you're doing nothing wrong and you're following orders makes you feel like you're not a citizen in a democracy, but more in a police state or a carceral state. Uh, we're there trying to observe what they're doing and just being snatched off the, the corner like that makes you feel so helpless. And that's a practice that it does seem like it was happening a lot where the police would sort of run out and grab somebody. Um, is that a typical practice? Does that uh, raise concerns uh, for you guys as legal observers? We, we have noticed that practice and we've Obviously, a lot of that is confidential between the protesters and the attorneys that are going to represent them. But that is a pattern in practice that we have noticed from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And then what do you make of the sheriff's statements? I mean, he, he described it as the legal observers were antagonizing the police. And he said people were holding up cell phones in a confrontational manner. Well, What's your response to that? I know you guys can recall when he 
Mr. Callaway speaking at the Clark County Commission meeting during the backpack ban said that reporters were being antagonizing. And this use of the word antagonizing, I believe, is purposeful. It's the same type of language that Bull Connor used to describe Dr. Martin Luther King. Antagonizing is a way to dehumanize people with which you disagree to try to make your unjust actions seem just. And that's what I believe the sheriff was doing, and it's really disheartening. So, John, in, in the video that Metro put out today of um, some of the legal observers, obviously you and Belinda were standing on the sidewalk when you were taken into custody. But as you mentioned before, there were several that were in the street trying to videotape what was going on when they were taking other um, non-legal observer protesters into custody. From a layperson's perspective, like it looks like they're getting in the street, they're getting up very close to the police. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what kind of rights that protesters have, both in Nevada law and constitutional law, to film um, on public sidewalks to, to do that kind of activity? Um, that would be that would be probably a better question posed for the ACLU. That I think that could go way more in depth in that area of the law. And then I, we we talked a little bit about kind of um, what happened when when you and Belinda were taken into custody. Can you tell us sort of what happened between? Um, then, were you, I'm assuming you were transported to the Clark County Detention Center. There were other uh, legal observers also detained. What, what was that process like? Kind of when were you finally released from custody and what's the kind of the current status of that? All right. So I will say in this whole event, if there was one lucky part that happened to me out of all of this was that we were not taken to the Clark County Detention Center. So when we were detained, the police officers came up, grabbed us, put our arms behind us, zip tied us and paraded us across Las Vegas Boulevard to a center meeting. There they sat us down and we waited and they searched our pockets. As you can see on that video, how they searched Belinda, we got the same type of search and pat down. And then they sat us there and waited. Then they pulled quite a few of us aside and said, okay, we're going to cite and release you. However, unfortunately there were three people that had already been transferred to the Clark County Detention Center, two law students and a woman named Janae Cobb. Now I can tell you, Ms. Cobb has spoken to me about her experience in the Clark County Detention Center and I have copious notes. I wanna relay them to you so that you know what the conditions were inside there and that what protesters are facing. Ms. Cobb related to me that there was both feces and blood on the toilet, feces and blood on the wall. There were insects inside of there. Some people were masked, some people were not. Some officers were masked, some officers were not. There was no real social distancing going on in this time of COVID and the conditions were really deplorable. Janae did not get out, Ms. Cobb, did not get out until 3.30 in the morning and we waited for her. And when she got out, all she wanted to do was go home and take a shower. She was really distraught about the experience that she had in the Clark County Detention Center. So I can say if there was anything good that happened to me out of all of this was that I was actually not transported to the Clark County Detention Center. Um, but you still have like a pending criminal case against you. Is that correct? That is correct. I have a court date coming up. I have a lawyer. <laughs> in, in a twist of irony, the lawyer has a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and I do have a court date coming up. And just so you know, I have my citation here. So my citation is a pedestrian intentionally in a roadway on Las Vegas Boulevard and Russell Road happening at eight o'clock that evening is what they labeled that. But as the video clearly shows, I'm on the sidewalk. Can you just tell us a little bit about who's 
or the training that you guys get as legal observers. Yeah, what, what, are, what are they telling you to do and not to do? Because of course the police are, are sort of implying that people were getting involved in and leading the protesters to confront the police. I, I understand that that's what they're saying, but nobody was getting involved. Actually, our instructions are to stay neutral and stay outside of the protests, right? And to just do your best to take notes of what's happening. Um, and by wearing the red legal observer shirts and being clearly identifiable, the hope is that you deter dangerous or illegal conduct by the government, which is alarming that they targeted us for arrest. And just in general, have there been practices that they said there have been 87 protests that, that they've responded to, Metro has, I guess, in the past couple of weeks. Has there been conduct that you specifically think has crossed the line from the police. I do want to tell you guys that we are going to have a press conference on Thursday. So I want to be the first to invite you guys on Thursday where there will be videos shown by our lawyers and lawyers for the protesters. And then I'll let you guys be the judge of that. Um, But I, I will tell you the first Saturday that we were out there, we were out there with the channel eight news reporter and we were gassed without warning. And so that was like one of our first experiences observing a protest is being gassed without warning and washing our faces out. Who works on legislative policy? I mean, is there enough in Nevada law, do you think, to hold people to account for this type of use of force? I kind of hope there is. I kind of hope we're at a moment in history where we are saying to ourselves that it's time for a change. Rather than calling people antagonists, why don't we look at the conduct that has led to people protesting in the street and better address that? John, just kind of in closing, like I've been trying to think of a way to like phrase this question the right way, but like I'm sitting here as a white man, you're sitting there as a white man, and we're talking about this experience that you went through that a lot of black individuals go through. And I guess I'm, I'm trying to ask like how this speaks to, you know, what's going on with these protests about the, the death of George Floyd, the fact that you were, um, you know, arrested and that you see this and that this has been happening to black protesters both in, in, in Las Vegas and around the country as these protests have continued over the last couple of weeks. I appreciate you struggling with asking that question correctly, right? I thought about that a lot too, because I shouldn't be the focus. For some reason, I, I, I have absorbed a lot of the focus of this, both from like the governor saying, hey, good job being out there and doing this, but also, but there are impacted communities that are facing this police action, which is causing them to take to the streets and protest that. And it happens to them day in and day out. And so I feel like one of the things that has struck me and I think will inform a lot of my work is if this could happen to me, a person who's following the law, who's not doing anything wrong, and I could be snatched up off the sidewalk like that and feel so helpless, imagine all of the people that feel so helpless, all of my clients that feel so helpless when this happens to them. And it messes with you, Riley. Like, I, don't, I didn't think that this would affect me as much as it has, but it, it really messes with you. The feelings of helplessness, the feelings of powerlessness, such that maybe you feel your only option is to protest in the street so that people can see how you feel. So if this could happen to me, imagine how it's happening to people without my resources, not in the public eye, Mm -hmm. and how we so easily excuse it. Oh, well, this person has a criminal record. This person has that, but they can't say that about me. 
So they choose to impugn my integrity. And then just kind of, you touched on it. Um, what has been the aftermath of this? Um, the governor spoke out. I think he follows you on Twitter. You know, I mean, did he reach out to you following your arrest and you're, you're speaking out about it? No, I think he's really busy dealing with opening the state of Nevada, COVID, and possibly a special session where all three of us will be up there. <laughs> all right. I don't know if you had anything further, Riley. Yeah, I think Michelle asked this, but just, um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about a special session. There's been a lot of discussion and I think consideration that there's going to be some kind of criminal justice uh, bills or packages that come forward. Obviously, we don't have those details right now because they're still, you know, being discussed. But from your perspective, from the public defender's perspective, and just what you've gone through um, over this last weekend, or is there anything that, that you've seen um, in this protest, whether it's the use of tear gas, whether it's specific police activities, that you think the legislature should take up? Are there things you're concerned about that they might take up that would be more of a band-aid or a symbolic step? Because you know the legislature loves to do symbolic things. What, what are you looking for out of, out of this special session? What I'm really hoping for, Riley, is that all this pain that our community is feeling can turn into some type of progress, can be recognized. And what we've been trying to do both in my role as a public defender and as a legal observer is to listen to the community and what reforms they feel are necessary moving forward. So I, I've been really just trying to listen to see where we can go from here, to turn all of this community pain into progress and not simply policies that police departments don't follow. Okay, I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, thanks so much for being willing to share your experience. Well, are you, I assume that you're relieved that a decision was finally made. I know that we've been waiting all month for the announcement, so. Yeah, I, look, it doesn't actually matter very much how I feel uh, about it. I am so happy for the, the DACA recipients who I talk to every day, who I work with as colleagues, and for all those people who, you know, I don't even remember their names, but I might have met briefly, or I might have just reviewed a renewal form that was prepared by somebody else. And I might not know if I'm even standing behind them in a line at the store, but I am just relieved for all of those people that that they still have a future uh, in this country that's, that's still at least tenuously recognized and protected. I think it's really about them. Absolutely. So shifting over to the your expertise, the legal side, what legal arguments stood out to you this morning? Oh, uh, well... As a, as a law professor, it's actually a fascinating decision. I think it's really about administrative law and about how, how the federal government can make decisions, even discretionary decisions, that uh, our government needs to give reasons and they need to be solid reasons. The case is about the arbitrary and capricious standard, whether rescinding DACA was arbitrary and capricious because there weren't sound reasons given for it at the time when the decision was issued. It really goes actually along on a legal level with Justice Roberts' decision last year in the census cases, which have a census case about putting citizenship, a question about citizenship on the census. The legal rationale there was quite similar in many ways, that the Trump administration had 
gotten to a conclusion that maybe could have been reached legally, but they did it in a way that was arbitrary. They either didn't give genuine reasons or they didn't give adequate explanations for their reasons. And Justice Roberts seems, in the majority of the Supreme Court, is basically reminding the government that in this country, even when the government is allowed to act, it can't act. And that's really what this is about. Yeah, I I talked to one DACA recipient this morning, and she definitely shared the same sentiments of, you know, this is not what I was preparing for, and so unexpected. She was like, I'm still processing it. Like, I think there's still a lot of people are still digesting yeah, and I, I want to caution as well, it's not over. It really isn't. As I mentioned, the Trump administration could try to do this again and just to not make the mistakes that they made in 2017. And the Trump administration, well, let me back up. Doc is on the ballot in November. I, I, the voters, not the Supreme Court, not Donald Trump, really can t- uh, control the ultimate future for DACA, maybe for, I hope, more permanent reform of our immigration laws. So this is not over, but for people with DACA, it means that the program that has meant so much to so many people survives. And it is really, I think, the first big defeat for the Trump administration of a major immigration program at the Supreme Court. They have ultimately prevailed at the Supreme Court on previous major immigration questions, say like the travel ban. So it's a, it's a big deal, but it's not the end. What are the next steps in the process? What happens next? And you know, what are dreamers looking to now? Right, well, look, immigration lawyers like myself, many of my colleagues are gonna be trying to understand the practical implications. So we think that we can do new applications for people who are eligible but who haven't been able to apply since 2017. But we're going to have to figure out the modalities of doing that, and those applications are not actually all that easy. People who have DACA permits still can renew and should renew, if, especially if they're expiring in less than six or five or six months. There's a bunch of other questions that we don't have solutions to right now. There's something called advanced parole. Without going into a lot of technicalities, was a way that um, someone with DACA could leave the country briefly, sometimes to visit a, you know, an elderly relative who they ha- haven't seen since they were three or four years old. And also, though, had a really important role in terms of immigration law in letting, say, let's say a DACA recipient who had married a U.S. citizen. Without going into why all this worked, it was a way that someone could actually apply for uh, permanent legal residency. And we don't think right now that that works, that that's available yet, because that depends on a lot of discretion that, frankly, we don't think the Trump administration would use in favor of a DACA recipient. So there's a lot of things that people really need, even within the world of DACA, that we might have to wait for a new administration for. And I'm, I got to remind everybody that DACA was never a permanent solution. It always was tenuous. The fact that we had to wait, you know, every morning for Supreme Court decisions for the past couple months shows how tenuous it was. So until there's legislation that recognizes the place that that immigrants have in the United States, including but not limited to, to dreamers, then people are going to remain in a fragile state. And that's a real, real shame. Those are all of my questions for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think that's it for now. I, I just want to say I think it's really important to talk to to dreamers themselves. I'm really happy for them, but they're a lot more important than I am right now. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. 
My pleasure. So how's your morning been? It's been pretty good. I woke up, so I was supposed to wake up at like nine, but I had gotten a whole bunch of texts and my phone was blowing up. So I was like, what's going on? I checked all my messages and stuff like that. And I was pretty happy. I, I, it took a while to soak in, but I am now like realizing like what this actually means for all of our community. And like, it's just joy that I feel like it's uh, I, I still obviously we have a long way to go in implementing something more permanent than the DACA program and I'm sure President Trump will try and and do something <laughs> to uh, reverse this decision or, or something like that but I think that obviously we still have a long way to go but this is just something that we can celebrate today and know that the Supreme Court has sided with us and understands the importance of DACA recipients and understands the, the importance of them and their contributions. So overall, I've, I feel very happy. I was thinking, so obviously there's still some like areas that we're not too sure of, like how, how is the DACA program going to be re-implemented? Like, is it going to completely go back to normal with advanced parole and people, new people being able to apply to the program. So those are questions that I'm sure are going to get answered in the next few days or something. But I was thinking about advanced parole and maybe the possibility of me like traveling to Mexico and going to visit family and stuff like that. And it, it makes me happy and I'm super excited to see what the future holds for the DACA program. I think that if this decision was being, I mean, it was able to be made under a tough party. So I, I, I foresee the future to be a little bit more on the positive side and in, in aspect to where this is headed, but we'll just have to see. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a mix of emotions of joy and then also uncertainty of like, what does this mean moving forward? There's like a whole, like I, um, my Instagram consists of a whole bunch of different like pages for uh, run by dreamers or organizations that support immigrants and stuff like that. So I've been following along with them and I think uh, that they'll be releasing more information soon. So I'm like staying on social media constantly to try and, and see what I can find out. So last time we talked, you mentioned that you were feeling a little numb just, you know, the regarding the impending decision and waiting and so do you feel like that fog has lifted or do you think there's still some of that there? I definitely think it's been lifted. Like I don't, like I can see my future a lot clearer now. I can be certain that if I decide to go into grad school, like I'll be able to use my degrees afterwards and like advanced parole, being able to travel outside of the country with protection and just that, that fear of being deported isn't there for me anymore. I know it's still present there for a lot of undocumented immigrants, but for right now, I, I like, I, I'm relieved for myself. I know that that fear of deportation is there for a lot of other people still. So it's definitely that feeling of, of being privileged is there. And I, I recognize that. Sorry, I want to go back to, you were talking about the possibility of advanced parole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, possibly going to visit your hometown in Mexico. So, and I know that you mentioned on our last call that that's like one of your greatest dreams is to travel. 
and you mentioned that your first stop would be going back to your hometown, but it would be on your terms, right? Yeah, so that was, that part of like advanced parole didn't hit me until a little bit after I received news of the DACA decision. And I told my mom, I was like, mom, I can go back back to Mexico and go visit family. And the first thing she said was like, well, it's kind of dangerous over there. Like, I don't know if you should be going back or like, but she's definitely happy. She's just, you know, a worried mom (laughs) about traveling. And there's always that fear for for her children. But I, I am really excited about that possibility of being able to go back and visit family I haven't seen in so many years and learn about my culture and just overall get to travel. And my sister, she's 16 right now, and she's finally, like, getting to that stage where she's, like, comprehending that, like, the world is so big and, like, the the, the cultures around the world are beautiful. So she's also thinking about traveling and wanting to explore. So the possibility of, like, me traveling with her, and we're super close, so, like, I think traveling with her around the world would be awesome and so much fun. So I, I, I can't wait to see where we go. How old were you when you last visited Mexico? So it was, I haven't gone back since I, since we moved here. So it's been about, I think, 17 years. Wow, yeah. a long time. So what are your next steps moving forward, like past today? I know that you are involved in your college's community for DACA students. So what does today's announcement entail for your work moving forward? I think before it was a lot of, like it was tricky because we we had that fear of DACA being taken away. So we were constantly trying to educate people on why DACA is important and why it should be kept in place. I think now moving forward, obviously we'd still have to, you know, work on educating people on why moving forward it's important to implement something more permanent and provide citizenship for DACA recipients. But now like our Outreach doesn't have to be based so much on fear, I think. For I think that's a lot of what was being like like reported in the news. Like uh DACA recipients scared of being deported or in fear of their future. Like now we don't have to live in fear. And now we can advocate for why we deserve to be citizens of this country and why we deserve to have all the rights that a US citizen does because we've We've been here for so long and contributed greatly to the country. So I think our initiatives are definitely going to be driven in that aspect. And our our DACA community, our immigrant community on campus is going to be much more, I feel, I think they're going to feel a lot more liberated in, in the way that they present themselves and the way that they see their future. Alrighty, well, thank you all for talking to me again. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast. And last week, I was joined by editors John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson. And at the end of the episode, we we kind of started chatting a little bit about our, our student days um, working in high school and college newspapers. And so today, I'm joined by uh, my co-host and producer, Jacob Solis. Hello, Jacob. Hi, Joey. How you doing? Good. How are you? 
good. And you were the editor-in-chief of our college newspaper at UNR, uh, The Sagebrush. That's right. I was. I I worked at The Sagebrush uh, all four years of my college career and was uh, editor-in-chief of that glorious student-run institution for two of them. And I I volunteered for the paper under you, and we wrote wrote several articles together, actually. And here we are, uh, you know, years later, working at the same... Uh, paper again together <laughs> it's funny how that works out yeah but um so yeah we, we we thought it would be fun to chat about kind of some of the interesting or or, or or maybe controversial stories that we worked on in in our student newspaper days and i know at the sagebrush we had we had many a controversy <laughs> so i don't know where you want to start but i know you've got plenty of stories to tell yeah, well, I mean, there there are the uh, fun ones, there are the ridiculous ones, and then there are the serious ones. And I think we got a lot of that, all of that, uh, mm-hmm. working at the Sagebrush for that long. Because um, I think people people forget this maybe, but that um, so much of your experience at college or any kind of like institutional experience like that is shaped by what's happening around you. And uh, when we were in college, it was from 2014 to 2018. And boy, were those some years, let me tell you. But if we want to start on a fun note, I remember probably the best ASUN elections, the Associated Students of the University of Nevada, they are the student government, like all student governments. I mean, look, they're the student government, but the presidential race was the only thing that captivated anybody, roughly 15 to 20% of the student population any given year. And one year was particularly exciting because instead of any kind of semi-serious race, one candidate, Royce Foyer was his name, um, ran a campaign dedicated to getting people not to vote for him. It was incredible to watch, honestly. Well, I think the the whole thing, if I remember right, one of his signs, he had a very good marketing team. For a, he had for... incredible marketing. This is, and I, I I can't overstate actually how much better his campaign was than any any legitimate candidate in the race. Obvious, he lost because his message worked. People didn't vote for him. I yeah, I don't it, I don't think I can't remember if I voted for him or not. But yeah, I remember one of his. One of his signs on campus just said, reverse psychology doesn't work. Don't vote for Royce. And I was like, this is very clever and very fun, but I wonder if it, if it will work or not. And I remember they were also like the best looking signs on campus. They were very well made. So for anyone who's not familiar, um, and I'm sure surely other campuses do it the same way, but functionally the only advertising you get as a candidate for um, ASUN is by buying these big plywood A-frames and painting them up by hand and um, trying to find as catchy a slogan as you can, plopping it in a highly trafficked area and calling it good and hoping for the best. Now, Royce's signs were these incredible, like, seven-foot, a-frames that were like painted bright yellow and red they immediately caught your eye he got actual like art students to help um in making them look much better than anyone else's and they were just they were so well done to the point that this it, it was um uh, there's there there's no words for it it was the only interesting thing that ever happened in student elections and i think i can say that <laughs> with some certainty yeah I, I remember that was uh that was right before i started volunteering for the paper but i remember one of the uh the first stories that I wrote with our, uh, our our good friend of ours, actually, Paolo. Paolo and I broke a story on a swastika being painted inside the art building, and that was something that kind of plagued the university for years, it seemed like, and that was definitely a more serious note. But, um, yeah, that was definitely something we were reporting on constantly, it felt like. 
Yeah, that's right. And I and I think especially post-2016, we saw a kind of resurgence of this kind of thing. Um, and even now, this to be topical about this, last week, the university released a statement um, about a few additional guidelines it was going to be following in the coming um, years and months. Um, ranging from things like putting Kaepernick, uh, Colin Kaepernick, who had played football for UNR, um, the Nevada Wolfpack, I should say, uh, lest um, our editor gets upset with us me. for <laughs> for talking about the wrong university in Nevada. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> there is a long and storied rivalry, Joey, between UNR and UNLV. I'm sure you know. What rivalry? Um, UNR is just better. Oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I should say that, yeah, the university ha- has had a lot of problems with these racist incidents where there was not just that swastika in the art building, there was later another one um, drawn in a dorm. There were issues with uh, campus police um, saying racist or uh, uh, remarks, or there was a police officer who was photographed in a racist caricature of Colin Kaepernick at a Halloween party. Um, There were issues with the school's chief diversity officer, who was a white woman who um, didn't actually have formal training in in diversity as a field. She was actually a communication specialist, and the president's chief of staff, who was given the chief diversity uh, uh, job uh, when the last one left. And so there were a lot of these stories that stacked up over time. And yeah, even even down to today, this this conversation is still happening at UNR. So um, I think that, yeah, as much fun as we may have had with some of some of the lighter stuff um, that happened there, there were some, I think, serious problems at the university when it came to that, because, I mean, the university is mostly white and uh, you the easiest comparison to make is UNLV, obviously. And UNLV is uh, one of the uh, one of a uh, few universities, I believe, in the country that is uh, majority minority. It is uh, a mm-hmm. minority of students that are white versus at UNR, where about two thirds are white. Um, and so and, and very few, I think three percent are black off the top of my head. And, and so there were there were a lot of issues. And I don't think those issues have necessarily gone away. Yeah, yeah. And so I think just to kind of wrap it up a little bit, you know, you were editor in chief of the school newspaper for for two years, and you worked there for four. Where do you when you when you when your time was up there? How did you feel about student newsrooms? Did you feel supported? Did you feel like the community was benefiting from you, or at least the college campus? Um, you know, I think student newsrooms are really important for young journalists. Um, I remember I worked in my high school newspaper, and I helped at the college newspaper, and here we are at a a real newspaper <laughs> or an online That's publication. Right. But uh, yeah, right. so where, where'd you land on that? Well, I think it's a really complicated question, as it turns out. So on the on the one hand, um, I mean, I learned more working for the Sagebrush and reporting for the Sagebrush than I did in my classroom, because there's there's something about that hands-on experience, and not only having it, but sort of being forced to, you know, you've got weekly deadlines versus a class, you know, where you might have, you know, a couple assignments due a semester. You have weekly deadlines. You've got to write three or four stories. And as a college journalist where you're not necessarily used to that environment, I think that was invaluable for sort of um, teaching me what the job was going to be like. Um, and I met a lot of great people along the way. And the, the staffs and the other student journalists that I work with at the Sagebrush uh, were incredible people. And it was an incredible time um, to learn uh, what I do and to learn to love what I do. At the same time, student journalism is in, I'd say, a crisis right now, and that's no different at UNR. When I worked at the Sagebrush, the four years I was there, I watched our publication go from 14 pages when I was a freshman to eight when I left in my last year in, as editor-in-chief. Our advertising revenue um, was cut nearly in half, um, and we we uh, instituted a semi-hiring freeze. Um, we had pay cuts. I took a pay cut as, uh, as editor-in-chief. 
Um, we couldn't pay our freelancers. We, you know, the the entire ecosystem and the way that the sagebrush has been run for more than 100 years, the paper goes all the way back to 1893, um, was breaking down at the seams. And um, the sagebrush specifically prided itself, and I took a lot of pride in this personally, that we were an independent publication, that we had no funding come from the Associated Students of the University of Nevada. We did use their space, but we did not take their money. Um, and we reached a crisis point where we were unsure if we could continue that independence. Since then, the the people who have followed me, uh, Madeline Perdue uh, and and Olivia Ali, who is the editor-in-chief now, they've both done a lot of work with the Save Student Newsrooms Initiative um, who try and raise money for these, these student orgs. Um, they've been great ambassadors for the programs, and they've, they've done a lot to actually steward the paper through these tough times. And I know what that's like, and it's not, and it's not fun. And so as much, as much fun as a student newspaper is, and it is a great time. So if anyone's like a high schooler or something, I don't know if high schoolers listen to this podcast. <laughs> I hope we have a couple <laughs> high school listeners. I, I hope we got, yeah, a, a few. Um, so I don't want to downplay how uh, uh, a formative an experience that working for a college paper can be when you really put your heart and soul into it. But the industry itself is not immune from the same trends that are killing local journalism everywhere. And um, to assume as much is, is, is you know, I'll, I'll say this and, and I'll end with this. If you can support a student newsroom, whether it be at UNLV or UNR, in UNLV, I know um, I, I didn't work much with the people over at this Garland and Gray Free Press, but they have had a, a real tough time in the last couple of years when it comes to funding. Um, please support your student newsrooms if you can. If they have ways that you can donate to them, please do that. Um, like I said, there's no better place to, to sort of get the student perspective at a university than a student paper, than the people who are there and living that experience. Um, that's all I have to say about that. All right, yeah. Well, that's a good note to end it on. So on, on top of donating to your local papers, the Nevada Independent, any of the other uh, papers around the state, also make sure to support your student newsrooms. And uh, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And thanks to John Pirro, Michael Kagan, Nayeli Rico-Lopez, Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez for being on the show this week. If you like what you heard, you can find us on other podcast platforms. Make sure to leave us a rating and review there as well. It helps the show grow and gets important information out to as many listeners as possible. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to suggest a segment or person for us to interview, you can email us at jacob at thenvindy.com or joey at thenvindy.com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.